TV, comics, movie stars, hit singles and some toys. It's trivia and dirty jokes, an evening with the boys. Once is never good enough for something so fantastic. So here's another Gilbert and Franks. Here's another Gilbert and Franks. Here's another Gilbert and Franks. Colossal classic. Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre, and we're here at Nutmeg Post with our engineer, Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is a writer, producer, and actress who's appeared in dozens of movies and TV shows. You've seen her work in Goodfellas, To Die For, Cape Fear... Uh, stir, stir of Echoes, Ghost World, and Grace of My Heart. TV appearances include Seinfeld, The Larry Sanders Show, The Drew Carey Show, Entourage, and Six Feet Under. She's worked with everyone from Robert De Niro to Buddy Hackett to Christopher Walken to Jerry Lewis, and her own new book is called I blame Dennis Hopper and other stories from a life lived in and out of the movies. Please welcome one of our favorite actresses and very likely the only person more obsessed with Richard Dreyfuss than we are, (laughs) Ileana Douglas. Yay. I'm so happy to be here. I love that. Thank you. So we were talking and now that I guess that was our rehearsal. Tell yeah. talk about how we met. Okay, we met at uh the uh the at the it wasn't even a premiere of Aladdin. It was they did uh, animation has come so far, but they they did a pre-screening of Aladdin and it was just sketches. And they had this extremely expensive kind of faux Indian premiere, and you were there, and and I was with uh, Martin Scorsese then, and you were telling us how they um, you almost didn't get the part because they thought you were uh, maybe too one dimensional to play the parrot. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <laughs> And Archie, he thought that was one of the funniest things. He just, he would always repeat that. He's like, remember that time we met him? So, too, yeah. I was so too one dimension. I didn't have the dimensions to be a cartoon parrot. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we, we remembered that. That was fun. That was so funny. And, and uh, I remember, well, two things I have to bring up. Okay, number one in your book, you describe yourself as an Italian Catholic. Yeah. Yeah. But your grandfather, great actor Melvin Douglas. Two-time Oscar winner Melvin Douglas. Yes, yes, revered actor, uh, is in fact a Jew, isn't he? Well, I I guess he is. He's half half Jewish. I mean, we're all we're in show business, so we're all Jewish, right? Yeah, the way I look at it, it's already established. You can't be in show business without 
being Jewish. But technically, <laughs> he was only half Jewish because his father was Jewish. And his mother was a was a Southern Scottish belle from Kentucky. Jeez. Yeah. So, um, but so this, that, that this would mean you're you are in fact contaminated with Jewish blood. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, 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 no. But isn't it? Aren't Italians and Jews the same? You're looking at two right here. <laughs> we got both sides represented. And, and you know, many and, times, many times, I've wanted to contaminate you with Jewish blood. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we have the the guilt thing is di- is slightly different. The guilt, the Italian guilt, and the Jewish guilt. A little bit different. Now, I remember, and it brought back a memory of the first time yes. meeting you, that in your book, you talk about being with the cool girl in the car, and yeah. she would ride up front, and you'd be in the back, and she yeah. was the pretty cool girl, and if she wanted a Coke, you ran out and got it for her. Yes. I remember uh, you standing there, and I think Scorsese introduced us. Yeah. And and uh, and he said, you know, this is Eliana Douglas. And you said hello. And I said, I'm kind of thirsty. Can you get me a Diet Coke? <laughs> and you got me a Diet Coke. Is that true? <laughs> yes. Well, I, was, I was so insecure. I would always think that, you know, nobody knew who I was. I was, you know, I was always like... Well, it's Marty, and people just want to talk to Marty and try to get a job, is what I was always assuming. <laughs> you weren't trying to get a job, right? No, no. I you was wanted... trying to get a Diet Coke. Oh, okay. Yeah, and you ran and got me a Diet Coke. Oh, well, good. I'm glad. I'm I, glad. I... I always remember that. Oh, thank you. Well, I was, you know, I, I figure you wanted your quality time with Martin Scorsese. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Although you, he was a big fan of yours. He was, you know. Was. Yes. <laughs> when, when, still, when, I'm hoping he still is. When did he turn against me? <laughs> I'm sure, well, maybe he'll turn up in vinyl, yeah. you know. See, see, having, for me, I uh, having Martin Scorsese as a fan is yeah. like having a blonde with big tits as your best friend. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> <laughs> but he like you know, but he was a fan of yours. So you should be on yeah, vinyl. I, I remember know. he he invited me out of nowhere before I even met him. He invited me to appear at Gracie Mansion when Koch was still in office. Yeah. Uh, about a whole thing about preserving old films. Yes. Yeah, that would have been the kind of exciting things we were doing. Yeah. <laughs> While other comedians were doing cocaine, we were, uh, you know, yeah. And I but, remember the first time I spoke to him on the phone, he says, well, I, I, I really want you to, to go there and speak. And, and, you know, you'll speak there and Robert De Niro is going to be there. And you know what a great public speaker he is. <laughs> <laughs> so he knew you were a film buff. Yes. Yeah, he knew that yeah. about you. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, will you are you are you a Jerry Lewis fan? Did oh, you have that? Major. Oh, he is. Major. Yeah, we talk yeah, we about it on our show a lot. Yeah, we're all obsessed. You can't go out with Martin Scorsese without being a Jerry Lewis fan, too. Oh, yeah. 
What's yeah. Don Rickles, you know, De Niro's obsessed with Don Rickles, too. Right. I heard that Don Rickles <clears throat> during Casino would yeah. just constantly be cracking jokes. Oh, that's yeah. true. Well, you know, the whole Don Rickles, uh, the whole reason he's in Casino, I was always obsessed with comedians. And um, I owe a lot to Bob Costas because I saw, If I don't know if you guys remember the old Bob Costas. Of course, Costas. yeah. We, yeah, we, we had, had him, on, him yeah. We had him here. Do you remember when he had Don Rickles on for five nights sure. in a row? Sure. He just kept the camera going. And he had him on five nights in a row. And he was talking about Vegas. And I was crazy about Don Rickles. And after I watched that show, I said, Marty, you got to get Don Rickles in Casino. He knows all about this. And Marty, uh, you know, bless his heart, was always so insecure. He'd always think, oh, Don Rickles doesn't want to be in my movie. <laughs> and, you know, and, of course... He ended up, he did it, and he was in, uh, you know, he was in Casino, and uh, all he ever did was make fun of um, Robert De Niro. He was terrible. <laughs> so pesky, though. Uh, yeah, I, I remember reading that uh, De Niro would do a dramatic scene, and Rickles would say, oh, that's the way you're going to play it? All right. <laughs> Totally, and he loved it. The only person he was afraid of was Joe Pesci, because Joe Pesci would really rough him up. <laughs> Scene, you know, they were shooting these scenes. It was like, you know, well, in Las Vegas, they, you know, they work 11, 12 o'clock at night. There was no t sense of time there. So they would be doing these scenes, and they'd have to wake up Don Rickles in his trailer, you know, it was midnight to go do a scene, and he was very afraid of, uh, Joe Pesci beating the hell out of him. <laughs> we we were also obsessed with the Costas show, Ileana. It was the yeah. greatest, wasn't yeah. it? Oh, and the last kind of show, and we said this to Bob, the last kind of show where you could, like the old Cabot show in a way, where you could get a guest on not only for several nights, but really get those kind of in-depth interviews. And he'd get people like Frankenheimer and Rod Steiger. And didn't you talk Marty into doing the show? I did. Yeah, I that, Those did. are also memorable episodes. I said, you have to do this show because, you know, once this show is gone, it, there there will be nothing else like this. And I was I was correct. In yeah. That. So yeah. He was really glad that he went on and did the show. Yeah. There hasn't been anything like it since. Now, uh, in, in your book, I, yes, I remember I I left at one point because in the beginning, yeah. It reminded me of that Albert Brooks movie, Lost in America. Ah, oh, the best. Where he decides to give up his advertising job rat race because yeah. he's he wants to live like Easy Rider. Touch Indians. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and that happened to you. Yeah. My um my parents saw, you know, we had just I mean, I was a little kid. I was four, but my parents had met in New York City and were living in the village and they'd moved to Connecticut and they were just about to sort of start the kind of classic American middle-class dream. And then my father saw the movie Easy Rider and came home and quit his job and became a hippie and started a commune called The Studio and, uh, and started a band and all of a sudden hippies were living all around us and you know they he started emulating uh dennis hopper and the values of the movie 
uh, Easy Rider, much like that movie, you know, with Albert Brooks, Lost in America. And it changed my life and changed my destiny because they saw that movie. And my mom used to say, why did they, why did we see that goddamn movie? <laughs> and when you finally met Hopper, what, what you, you obviously, you told him this, you were dying to tell him this. Oh, well, that was like the whole joke. I couldn't wait. I said, this is going to be great. I'm going to meet Dennis Hopper and blame him for my life and ask him for all the money I think he owes me because, <laughs> you know, we became poor because of the commune, um, because, you know, free love is expensive as we began to fig as my parents figured out. But the day I was supposed to meet Dennis Hopper on my way to the set, I ended up being in a car accident because uh, the, the the intern fell asleep at the wheel. And so but that by the time I met Dennis Hopper, I was like lying on the ground and saw my life flashing before my eyes and thought I heard my father speaking to me. But in fact, it was in the real Dennis Hopper. And uh, so it was very different than I had anticipated. And he... Uh, you know, cradled me in his arms and told me I was having a concussion and said, your brain isn't supposed to move inside your head. It's not supposed to do that. And uh, that's why I had my own epiphany with Dennis Hopper. You know, it's funny, Ileana. You, you and I also met. There's Gilbert's phone going uh, off. We'll edit that out. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> you got it. You and I also met at the Joy Behar show a couple of years ago at HLN in the yes. green room, and you were so nice. And it was just funny because I walked into the room. We'd never met. And within, I think, three minutes, we started talking about old movies. I obviously yes. knew, knew, who you, knew who your grandfather was. And why I think you were destined to do this podcast, and I have to tell this to Gil, too. I didn't get a chance to tell him. I'm going through the book, and I'm finding movie after movie and reference after reference that we've made on this show. Oh, my God, yes. Really? Well, yeah. I mean, we do, uh, when we're not doing uh, celebrity interviews like this one, we do a little mini episode on Thursdays yeah. where oh. we just we just obsess about movies we love. One yes. movie you mentioned in the book that's an obsession of mine, yes. uh, The Swimmer with Burt Lancaster. Oh, there you go. Fr Frank Perry. Frank Perry. My first professional job in show business right across from... You know, from Frank Perry working with uh, Peggy Siegel, the film publicist, and working uh, day by day next to Frank Perry, the swimmer. That that movie hypnotizes me every oh, time I watch it. I could watch it a million times. You know, Alec Baldwin for years wanted to do a remake of that. Of didn't that know, I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't know yep. that. I, I wanted to, but I can't swim, and I look terrible in swim trunks. Well, you asked, we were talking about Robert Osborne and, and Gilbert being on TCM, and The Swimmer was one of the movies you picked, actually, right, yeah. Gil? Yeah, I picked The Swimmer, The Conversation, wow, uh, Freaks, and uh, the original of Mice and Men with Lon Chaney and Burgess Meredith. Oh, an eclectic isn't mix. that a killer? Isn't that a killer? Oh, I yeah. I have the album of that movie. You know, remember the day they used to sell it? Oh, yes. I have covers. They'd have, like, the music, and then they'd have the conversation. So you, if you ever wanted to cry, which is me, I always want to cry. Like, another way to make yourself cry is to, after the movie, get the soundtrack, and then you can have the conversation on the album and, you know, yeah, make I, yourself I, cry. I, beautiful, I, beautiful film. Yeah, I remember I had... Of course, the album to the Godfather, the yes. Godfather theme. 
<laughs> now, now you just have the movies. You don't have to have the albums. No, something about having the album again, it's that secretive thing where it wasn't as easy to share emotion in those days. Do you find that to be true? Like, if you were watching a movie with your friends, if you cried at a film, you were like an idiot or a loser or a nerd or something. So you wanted to do all that stuff privately. So by getting the album and maybe bringing it up to your bedroom and closing the door, you could put on the album, re-listen to it, and re-feel all those feelings that you couldn't do in public. At least that was me. Oh, and I, I just remembered something I had to ask you. Yes. Getting back to your grandfather, the great Melvin Douglas. Yes. Uh, what was uh, his greatest piece of advice to you? Oh, I love that. <laughs> he said, well, we were on the set. I went to visit him in the set of being there. And, you know, I was a little kid. I kind of wanted to be in acting. And at that point, I was kind of obsessed with Ruby Keeler. I thought that was like act what acting was, being in a movie, being Ruby Keeler. But he said, Liana, you want to be an actress? I want to give you one piece of solid advice. Wherever you are, always order the club sandwich. Because <laughs> wherever you are in any country, the one thing... They can't screw it up. It's always the same. So always remember to order the club sandwich. That's sound advice. And so, yeah. so go ahead, go. This is, this is Melvin Douglas, one of yeah. the greatest actors right. ever, and that's the bit of advice. That's, that's what he said. But I can't tell you how many times, like, you know, I remember having food poisoning in Madrid and in Ritz, Madrid. You know, so many times I open a menu and I'm like, yeah, I have the club. Oh, the club <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't win two Oscars for nothing, Eliane. Oh, he knew. He knew. Order the clubs. Always go with the club sandwich. And speaking it's always of, the same. Speaking of Melvin Douglas, and I was getting back to why I thought you were destined to do this show, another movie we talked about and that you picked, Gil, was HUD. Yes. Yeah, I recommended HUD. Yeah, we've talked about HUD. We've talked about being there. We've talked about, I know you're like Ace on the Hole. Ace on the Hole. We talked about... Greatest. Ace in the Hole is happening right now. Yep, yep, sure right? is. Oh, and a little yes. bit of face in the crowd. Yes. More Ace in the Hole. Yeah. The media has created Donald Trump, and they pushed it. Everybody's going to go watch Ace in the Hole. They just pushed it a little bit too far, and now they kick it back. <laughs> but um, they he's out there. He's goose-stepping. It's great. <laughs> It's a hell of a movie. Yeah. And we've also talked about Bang the Drum Slowly, which turns up in your book, and The Changeling with your grandfather, and After Hours, and The King of Comedy. And these, yeah. are, these are all movies that we've discussed on the show, yeah. and they play a prominent role in your book. Because I don't follow sports at all, and yeah, yet I, I, I love Bang the Drum Slowly. Uh, I saw it at a drive-in. I mean, again, there were so many great films I saw at drive-in movie theaters, they, you know, parents, there was no, you know, parental d discretion. They sent us off to the drive-in and we were watching nudity and watching all these films. And so luckily for me, I guess, because I was unattractive, while everybody else was getting it on, I was actually, I'd actually <laughs> be watching the movie. <laughs> And watching these amazing films, I saw Serpico, 
that way. I, but bang the drum slowly. I, you're right. I don't even like sports. And that's one of the saddest movies I have ever seen. It is heartbreaking. And, and a couple of times on this show, I have sung the song that uh, De Niro and those other people, not the sad song, but yeah. when they're on the variety show. Yes. And they start singing that song. It's a killer. It's a killer. And we have no other actors like Vincent Gardini. Oh, my oh, God, yeah. Right? Yeah, we loved yeah. him. We loved him. Yeah. No one exists. Like, you know, again, we have wiped out, which is getting back to your thing about being Jewish, we've wiped out ethnic, ethnicity in films where you need a great Irish guy. You need a great Jewish actor. You need a great Italian actor. There's just a broad, quote unquote, ethnic person. Does that make sense? That's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. It's, we, we, you know, they talk about diversity and it's great to have diversity, but it's like we're also losing cultural identity within what makes each culture interesting. And speaking of drive-ins, we're also losing movie theaters. I mean, one of the saddest things in your book, I mean, in this, the, the nostalgia stuff about you and the drive-in is very sweet. Yeah. But also you start talking about the theaters, the old New York theaters that are gone. Like, oh like the Thalian. The Ziegfeld just closed here, the, which is heartbreaking. The Ziegfeld. How many great movies have I seen at the Ziegfeld? Us too. I mean, I remember just being, like, depressed and just thinking, I got to go to the Ziegfeld and just – just see a movie, just to sit there and see a movie and know how good it feels to see a film. I mean, the scary thing is I can foresee the day, not in the way future, but close up, and that's when all the movie theaters close up. Yeah, that's, well, that's true. I mean, that's, it's happening. In this, you know, you can, you can watch movies on Netflix, but we don't have the context of seeing it in a group. That's one of the things they talk about in the book, what it actually Mm -hmm. felt like to see Jaws as a kid. Oh, yeah. And just be in a group of 600 people screaming their guts out at a movie and to actually feel that excitement and what that excitement felt like. Yeah, those days are going to be gone. Well, you uh, still you've still got the Arc Light and and and, chi- and the Chinese Theater and the Cinerama Dome. I mean, we've lost I think almost all the show places in New York, Gil. Yeah, oh, the, yeah. there's almost nothing left. I I remember Regency's seeing gone. I remember seeing Death Wish in the theater. And yeah. every time he shot down a mugger, the crowd would go insane. Yeah. And they'd be jumping, cheering and applauding and that kind of thing. I know. Well, it's exciting. You don't. The only time I experience that now is at Turner Classic Movies when they have the film festival and they'll show something like they showed. It's a mad, mad world, you know, in in 70 millimeter. Mm -hmm. And people were going insane because, you you know, you just don't get to experience anything like that anymore. Well, we've also talked about how sometimes the movie going experience colors your your memory of, of seeing that film. Oh, completely. That, that, you know, that day you went to that theater, you, you met that person online. I mean, seeing, I saw pennies from heaven, the, the Herbert Ross 
version of Pennies from Heaven, the Steve Martin movie, in a, yeah. in, a, in, a, in a snowstorm at the Ziegfeld. I'll never forget it. And I was one of the two people in the theater. And it, it, it really affected my experience of, of the film, which is something yeah. I think we're going to lose. To- totally. I remember being in acting school and we had an experience in our class. I mean, completely tragic where a, a girl in our class had been murdered. I mean, came to New York with a big dream and and, you know, our teacher gathered us all and he said, um, you guys should all go to a movie today. Like we didn't know what to do with ourselves. He said, you know what? Go out and see a film and be together and watch a movie together. And even that seems like a kind of an old fashioned idea. I mean, this was, you know, 1986. But, you know, though movies used to make you feel good. Yeah, it's an experience that I, we're losing in, in New York, which is very sad. Yeah. Well, plus the whole, as I write in the dri- drive-in. And drive-ins, too. Yeah. The social experience. Oh, yeah. Also, I remember when I used to go to movies and I'd see a movie that I really liked, I wouldn't want to experience anything else. I wouldn't want anything to interfere with that feeling. Yes. Yeah. I- Oh, yes, I know what you mean, because you've, you've, you know, I remember like, yeah, watching a movie and, you know, you got this whole vibe and you'd leave the movie and my mother would say to me, what is the matter with you? And I'd be like, yes, it's working. I'm, I'm whoever I've just seen in the movie, you know. It, it was kind of like you are high on something and you didn't want anything to interfere Absolutely. I didn't want people to talk to me. I didn't want to see TV or any other movies. Yeah. I I just wanted to live in that. I agree. I agree. And I wonder if we, you know, it's very rare that we have that experience now. Did you ever have the experience where if somebody didn't like a movie you liked that you you know, broke up with them or with them? (laughs) Ended a friendship. (laughs) You guys are laughing. Sure. I'm like all the time. My test was always the heartbreak kid. That's oh, my test. Oh yeah, yeah. We've talked if, another one. We've talked about on this show. If somebody doesn't like the heartbreak kid, like I can't be friends with. You. <laughs> well, our, our our friend is Drew Friedman, who's uh, Bruce J. Friedman's son, who wrote the original yeah. story. He'll be very happy to hear you say that. I'm, I'm like, if you can't quote that film and know it. <laughs> I can't, I cannot be friends with you. And a new leaf, since you're talking about Elaine May. Well, a new leaf yeah. again is another one. One of your one of your picks. Cl- classic. Even Marnie and I used to quote that all the time. She'll yeah. be in my house, touching <laughs> my things. Now you, I've heard, do a Shelley Winters imitation. <laughs> Our, I am not a comedian. You're a comedian. I I was a comedian for like a minute. But uh, I barely, barely got by with uh, Shelley Winters. In my era, you know, she had already, she, you know, she'd been a 50s bombshell. Right, sure. And Post-Poseidon Adventure, she'd gotten sort of large. And she got by a lot by sort of talking about her, her you know, she'd been friends with Marilyn Monroe, Robert De Niro. But she used to, she would kind of, kind of have like a, a little, like a little catch in her voice when I was, you know, Bobby and I were, were friends and I, 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 I taught Marilyn how to be sexy. That, that was- <laughs> 
She's constantly like rubbing her breasts. <laughs> we will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You know who does a wonderful Shelly Winters in the Poseidon Adventure, Eliana, is Mario Cantone. Really? Oh, You've my got God. Sing- Mario Cantone. I love him. Yeah, we've had him on the show. He's a friend. And he does he, he does maybe the best Shelly Winters going. But that was pretty damn good. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I, George Stevens said to me, when I was working with Stanley Kubrick, he said, she always was like almost out of breath. I would always talk about who she stooped, too. Yeah, always. Yeah, that was the big thing. You know who, who took over for the talking about... I knew Robert De Niro and Ooh. I knew Al Pacino. Uh, uh, Sally Kirkland. Yeah. She became, She's the new uh, yeah, Shelly Winters. She, for a while, was going on every single talk show. And yeah. her claim to fame was, oh, I went to acting school with Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. And that was her. <laughs> oh, God. Ileana, there's so many places we could go. I mean, you you want to talk about being on the set of being there as a kid? Do you want to talk about our shared obsession with Richard Dreyfus? Oh, where 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 do we let's let's try to do them all quickly? Okay. Because this is just book one. I know. <laughs> you got more in you, huh? Book two, we're gonna get into the Larry Sanders show. Oh yeah. The phenomenon of that—it's all—it's all one well, big. There's movie. so much we have. We have to ask you about Buddy Hackett and action. Uh, I mean, we could keep Buddy going. Hackett. But, but you t- know, Buddy, Buddy Hackett—you know—again, there was a time in show business where it was not politically incorrect to come up to your co-star, put your hand up her skirt, and say <laughs> good morning. <laughs> Yeah. Sad. yeah. Sad and things like that. <laughs> I miss those days. I, I know, yeah. me too. Yeah. He says it to me. Be like, oh, buddy. And then you'd sort of try to put his hand from out from under your skirt. And I'd say, oh, buddy, you realize I'm not a waitress in uh, 1962. We're not at the Sands Hotel. Um, but, uh, yeah, so Buddy was uh, just an incredible person to work with. Oh, yeah. Tell us some Buddy Hackett stories because we love well, him. I'll, t- I'll tell you the most. I mean, there was, Buddy was, of course, incredible. But I would say that the the – the saddest thing, but also the most endearing thing about Buddy is that we were on top of the world with that show, Action. I mean, oh, it's a fun the, show ahead of its time. Just, yeah. When we just thought, you know, we, we, I made that show business mistake of like, we all thought, oh, this show's amazing and we're going to be here forever. But, you know, then we got canceled 
And I remember shooting on the very last day and we were in some ridiculous outfit. I was dressed, I was dressed as the elephant princess. And I remember Buddy Hackett sort of crying and saying to me, I'm never going to work. This will be my last show business job. You, you're never going to see me again. And I said, oh, buddy, that's not true. And, of course, it like it was true. And it was, again, one of those sort of sad, you know, things, those reminders of those show business legends, Buddy Hackett, Milton Berle, Jerry Lewis. Like once they're gone, that's yeah, it. It's true. That's it. We have no ties to what it was actually like to be a comic in those days um, and we all, all we have left is the stories that they told us and they weren't, you know, they weren't as forthcoming in those days, except about women they slept with those that they talk about all day long. But, you know, once those type of people leave, all we have left are the people that he, that they told stories to. So it becomes more and more important. Well, it's you know? one of the reasons we do, we do this show. I mean, we're trying to keep that alive. Exactly. Again, another example is Peter Sellers. You know, I only had the experience of meeting him one time. My grandfather had this experience. He was in the uh, in the army. They had been just completely coincidentally stationed together in Burma at the same time. So he had a relationship with Peter Sellers prior to being in the movie, but they had a very special relationship. And I knew him really as Inspector Cluzo from mm -hmm. the films. But, you know, my grand, you know, so again, I went from this experience of seeing a poster of him on the wall to now I'm meeting him. And he immediately went into this Inspector Cluzo uh, you know, you know, routine for me of accusing me of being in this, you know, French baguette stealing ring and everybody was laughing, but then he got very serious and he said, um, he asked me, you know, do you ride a unicycle? And I said, no, I don't ride a unicycle. And he said, oh, but you must, you must ride a unicycle because it's hard and not everybody can do it. And it was such an odd thing to say to a child, yet it seemed funny and I kind of remembered it. And then all these years later, as I write about, I had this experience where I go to see a psychic. She informs me that, you know, uh, Peter Sellers has this message for me that he's sitting there on a unicycle, you know, <laughs> and... Uh, and it was incredible. And to me, it was this reminder, again, of this idea of him, what he said to me all these years later, being on a unicycle, you know, and uh, it's hard and being a comic and it's hard and not everybody can can do it. But he was somebody that was misunderstood, I think, you know, not people don't understand how complex it is to be a comedian going back to Buddy Hackett and Jay Moore, probably yourself, you know, people are, comedians are pretty crazy. And I don't think we have as much sort of understanding for them as we used to have. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. You know, like it's, we're not as forgiving these days with as much Prozac and blah, blah, blah. That's out there. I feel like there's less, of a forgiving atmosphere for people who are vulnerable. You know, Buddy Hackett used to be, 
he, you know, he was very, he'd be very crazy. And then all of a sudden he's very sweet. Then he'd be crying. Then he'd be groping you. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, it was like, you know, give him a, what he had. Just give him a break. Yeah, okay? now, nowadays, <laughs> that would be all over the Internet. I know, I know. That Buddy Hackett grabbed some girl's ass. They demand an apology. No. But he'd have to go on every show as a confessional. I know. As long, as long as we're talking about Buddy, have you seen him play Lou Costello in the TV movie? No. Ileana? Okay. If nothing, oh. if nothing else comes out of this episode. Okay. <laughs> there, there was Buddy Hackett. Yeah. Uh, and and Harvey Corman yeah. played yeah. in this Bud and Lou movie where they were Abbott and Costello, and they, they I mean the the routines were terrible in the movie. <laughs> they couldn't get the timing down. As at Gil all. says, it's like they'd never seen Abbott yeah. and Costello. Yeah, it's like yeah. they never heard of Abbott and Costello <laughs> and were just handed the script. But there is one scene. That I thought, oh, this is the greatest movie death scene of all time. Yeah. Uh, Artie Johnson from yes. Laughing shows yes. up as their, I guess, Eddie Sherman, Eddie Sherman their manager. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, Buddy Hackett as Lou Costello is in his hospital bed. It's on YouTube, Ileana. You could see it. Okay. And, and, and Artie reaches under his jacket and he takes out this container and he goes, I got you a strawberry malted. And, <laughs> and Buddy takes one sip and he goes, You know, I, I hire a lot of strawberry malted in my day. But this one's the best. And he, his head falls to the side, and he's dead. Oh, no. You must see it. As somebody who knew Buddy and worked with him, you must, you must. Oh, my God. That was this week. Yeah, Buddy brother. also, you know, he hated smoking, couldn't smoke around him. And we had, we went to New York for the, what they call the upfronts. That's when you, they... You know, decide yeah, sure. that your pilot's going to be picked up. And we were at the upfronts, and there was some actress, and the, her manager was smoking in New York. In those days, you could smoke. And, you know, Buddy got up from the table, grabbed the guy, and punched him in the jaw. And <laughs> That's a good story. The guy oh. was on the ground. Like, what? What? no, you can't get away with stuff yeah. like that. You'd be like, it's Buddy Hackett, whatever, you know. I, well, it's like Don Rickles would have had his career destroyed, the stuff yeah. he said, nowadays. Yeah, no, I know. You can't say anything these days. Now, Nothing is, What you know. Jerry Lewis stories do you have meeting okay. and working with him? That's book number two. Book number two <laughs> well, there's some of it in the back of book one. Yes. Toward the end. Laying the groundwork for, our, for, uh, uh, for Jerry is that, uh, well, we met, and I got cast, weirdly, this little cameo in a movie called uh, Max Rose, and I was playing his psychiatrist, and uh, we just, you know, we just hit it off. We started, you know, becoming friends, and I traveled with him a bit to watch shows with him on the road, and uh, it's he's got a whole fan base out there, 
Um, I mean, I know people have very strong feelings about him, but he did contribute a lot to, you know, the film industry. I don't know. I, I can't speak about people's personal feelings about him, but I didn't feel any of those things. You know, again, he works with he worked with Kathleen Freeman. He was a huge fan of Tony Fields. So <laughs> I love was, Kathleen Freeman. Ah. But so it's always interesting to again to see the public perception to somebody and what that comedian's privately like. And all you can do is stand back these days and go, you know, I, I think maybe he's a little misunderstood. Can he give you a like, gift? He he give he, well he's given me many gifts. The first gift he gave me was again a uh, wanted to give me a flashlight, and uh, he wanted me to have a flashlight, which I thought was a sort of a nicely significant gift um, because when I was a kid, I used to always I, I used to have this dream about having a gigantic flashlight and, <laughs> and putting it in the sky. That was my dream. Uh, like I was leading kids, that I was leading people through the darkness. So him giving me this flashlight was a sort of strangely significant gift because I thought it coincided with, you know, my work on Turner Classic Movies. And he, you know, he never had his handprint footprint in the in front of Grauman's. Wow, I didn't know that. Really? Yeah. So it was something I sort of mentioned and campaign for him again he's not the most politically correct person but um i felt as if he was kind of do something and uh so they you know they it ended up uh you know he did get his handprint footprint there it has brought back some i think positive feelings for him but you know it's he's a complex person people don't seem to uh relate to him you know although i i think his movies are great i don't you know i again i don't quite understand it but and and scorsese looks up to lewis i i think he does to a certain extent i mean i what my recollection was interesting being having marty talk about jerry on king of comedy and all of his contributions to king of comedy you know, which Jerry, you know, originally King of Comedy was going to be Johnny Carson. Yeah, sure. And then that didn't work out. And then they ended up with Jerry. And once Jerry came on board, he really kind of shaped that movie in ways that I don't think people are really aware of, which is some of the things I had heard from Marty. And then later on, when I got to know Jerry, those were things that he confirmed, you know, being able, you know, there's a whole there's a whole part in the movie where they're doing the live television show and Jerry directed a lot of that. Those were all like his suggestions. He had a lot of contributions to that film much more than I think he ever acknowledged, you know, we've talked about that film. We love it. Oh, it's the, it's, it's the best. They don't make black comedies. Uh, Hollywood doesn't make black comedies like that anymore. No, but they don't do that- them as well as that. No, not at all, especially with an icon like him. Yeah, it's so good. And I yeah. I remember also in your book, and I had heard this before, then it fascinated me, that originally uh, Steven Spielberg was going to direct Cape Fear and yes. Martin Scorsese was going to direct Schindler's List. Yeah. 
That's true. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's yeah. What, yeah they swap projects. Yeah. I, I'm I'm the rememberer, I guess. And um, you go ahead. Yeah. No, no, that's that that's true. Marty originally had the option on Schindler, Schindler's list, and he was going to do it. And through you know, while I was out doing this little cameo again in this movie called Guilty by Suspicion, they discussed it and they ended up swapping material. So Marty ended up doing Cape Fear, and Spielberg ended up doing Schindler's List, and. Uh, and it, it's interesting to see how that all, you know, how, how that all turned out. I think it worked out. It, it It's one of those things, like, I kind of wish separately they had both done both pictures. And Well, it's interesting. You know, I think Marty's concern was that because he was not Jewish, would, would, the, would audiences, you know, would he be raked over the coals? We're doing a film like Schindler's List. What yeah, it's a, it's a risk. What do you think? Like, yeah, what the, you... Well, the closest, he dealt with the Holocaust a little bit in Shutter Island. He did? Yeah. God, I don't even remember that. Oh, yes, yeah. Because it's like um, what uh, DiCaprio uh, has memories of like shooting down the Nazi soldiers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh God! Okay, I think I blocked that out. That's yeah. like one of the movies that sort of goes over the top of my head. I guess there's a lot of like rear screen projection in that film. Yeah, that, that somewhat threw me. And I know Marty was a big fan of Val Luton films. Are you? Do you like the uh, Val? Oh yeah, yeah, sure. We've talked about yeah, yeah the body, so, the body snatcher, and yeah. yeah. So when I Don't saw Shutter him. Island, it seemed like a Val Luton movie. It had all, a lot of those qualities. I hadn't thought it th- through that way. Had you, Gilbert? No. It is a little bit like that. It's got those qualities. But interesting that you, you, you point that out. I wonder if that was a big regret of his. Yeah, because there is a scene in a concentration camp. Wow. And, and then when he meets, uh, what's his name? Mark uh, Ruffalo? No, the, um, the exorcist. Oh yeah, Max oh, von Sydow. Max von Sydow. Right. Yes. Uh, he's it's it shows there's a tension there because he's speaking in like a German accent. Yes. So he immediately hates him. Interesting. Okay. I, I just wish Martin Scorsese had directed more comedies, out and out comedies. Oh. I mean, Goodfellas is funny and Casino's funny, but but After Hours, which we've talked about, Gilbert and yeah. I have talked about, and The King of Comedy are so wonderful. Well, you just wish he'd gone back to that well. Yeah, well, I mean, you and I, we may be in the minority. I felt that way. I was, you know, when I met Marty, when he was doing Last Temptation of Christ, those were all, <laughs> I love King of Comedy and After Hours. I wasn't as much of a fan of Raging Bull. And, <laughs> right, you and, and me both. Streets, I like even though I, I know they're the classic films, but I just loved After Hours. I thought it was one of the funniest movies I'd ever seen. And King's Comedy, I just thought it was brilliant. And, and yet, for lack of a better term, I mean, all of his films are highly regarded, but they're, they're, those two films are a little bit of ugly stepchildren. I think so. And, the, and I, 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 maybe because the, you know, the, the reception wasn't great that he didn't go back into making comedies again. But boy, the, the, both times that he tried... 
They're, well, he's very he hit, funny. Hit the bullseye. Gilbert knows that he's very funny. Loves comedians. You know, he does love comedians. Yeah, he was at the roast. He was at the front, the Jerry Lewis yeah. roast. Oh, yes, at the yeah. Friars. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I think he's very funny, but you know, I yeah, I guess you're right. I, and I guess doing a comedy at this stage would be sort of tough, maybe. And I remember him sending me a tape. Of like like an old Eddie Cantor vaudeville routine <laughs> as a Jewish tailor that he was very he was a big fan of. <laughs> Did you ever see Hell's a Poppin? Oh no, Olson and Johnson. Oh yeah, he yeah he would watch he sometimes we would watch these movies. Yeah, we watched Hell's a Poppin, and sometimes you know they and he also loved Red Skelton. It was a big red skeleton. Well, we won't hold fan. that against him. Not a name again mentioned too much, <laughs> but there was uh, right. There was like uh, I, you know, sometimes like if I was like I, I was like, please don't make me watch one more like Red Nichols, uh, Red Skelton film. <laughs> Fuller, you know? Fuller Brushman. I mad, I'd be forced to watch Red Skelton. <laughs> so since we touched on it. And by the way, I want to go go. I want to speak since Gilbert mentioned Spielberg. Uh, this is a side note, but you also have defended a film that we've defended on this show, 1941. Ah, the best. Yeah. <laughs> I, again, we're in a minority. No, it's yeah. it's it's you know, the interesting thing is when I show that film on TCM on Second Looks, everybody thinks the film was a disaster. It was that it was a hit. It just was not blockbuster it was not of the level of jaws however that being said when we showed it on tcm there was a whole new uh renewed interest in the film and since then it's been given a blu-ray release and they've started to screen it again wow maybe so, in part because of you guys i think so I mean, I think that people again spielberg Never made another comedy. I know. Yeah, put his name on a couple as a producer, but never. Yeah. There. So here's here's two arguably the two best filmmakers of the best American filmmakers of the last what forty years. Yes. And they both had slightly compromised experiences. You could yeah. say making comedies, and I think shunned them after that. Yeah. And I, I I think it's unfortunate. And Spielberg and Scorsese and all those guys of that time period are all friends. Well, I mean, are they friends? I don't know. I'm asking you. <laughs> I'm the interviewer. You're the guest. I'm asking you. <laughs> I, think, I don't know if they are friends. You know, Mark, you know when, when we were living in New York, I always felt like, you know, Marty was like, you know, the Phantom of the Opera, like, you know, in his brownstone never going out and i used to try to get him to go out and you know see people and be out in the human race and meet other filmmakers i think there's this assumption that they are all really close friends and i but i think that there's a little bit of friendly competition amongst everybody you know i don't know if they're as close friends as we all imagine it you know, does that make sense? Gil Gilbert wants to live in a world where they're all really good friends. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> I want, I want it to be like the Rat Pack, De Palma too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's quite that. Yeah, I don't think it's quite that way. I remember 
you know, sort of going out to uh, uh, Steven Spielberg's house in the Hamptons. And it would be like Marty and Brian De Palma and Spielberg. And it was always very awkward between them. You know, always, there was always like a little bit of friendly competition between them. The only thing they could agree on was that Coppola was a genius. That was their all, you know. <laughs> They would all be competing with one another and there'd be a sort of quiet as, you know, they get to Apocalypse Now and go, yep, yeah, Francis. <laughs> yeah, could, Francis we, is a genius. And that, you know, they'd be on safe ground. Now, you do Raging Bullwinkle? No. <laughs> I used to. No, but back in 1986, I did it. But I don't, well, I no longer, you don't have enough money to have, to make me do Raging <laughs> Uh, do, do Raging Bullwinkle, which is one of the scariest things I ever had to do. Everybody keeps making you do it. I saw you on Kevin Pollack's show, and he he tried he tried to get you. It's not even funny. I'm not a comedian. That's why I was a comedian for about a minute. Well, does Gilbert know that? Do you know that Ileana did stand up here in the city at stand up New York? At stand up New York, and oh. she was. Were you briefly managed by Carrie Hoffman? No, I wanted to. I didn't a guy even we know. Oh, okay. I was like. I won this contest. I was like, how hard could this be? Be funny for five minutes. And I won a couple contests at Stand Up New York. And what was so funny was he kind of lied to me and he said, you know, listen, you do well here and you win this contest and, you know, I'll get you on Letterman. So I got on, I won the contest and I said, when do I get to be on Letterman? And he goes, no, no, you misunderstood. I meant you play your cards right, you go out, on the road, <laughs> you do some gigs and someday you'll be on Letterman. So, uh, so I didn't like the idea of going on the road. I went on one gig. He sent me on one gig to like Mount Vernon and I was taking the subway home at one o'clock in the morning and thinking... How do how do girls do this? Like this is terrifying. I mean, how does a young girl do stand up yeah. without getting molested? It's a rough life. That was always like my uh, experience of doing stand up. There was like the casual groping that 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 preceded uh, everything that I would do. I didn't quite understand. But is that just me or? No, just- no, I get groped all the time. At, uh, people grab my dick before I go on stage. <laughs> or he wouldn't go. <laughs> I was doing stand-up with people like Judy Gold, so maybe they yeah. didn't have the experience that I had. But I was, I was always experiencing like... Wow, this seems to be like this is kind of a kind of a seedy and seedy environment to do stand up. Uh, so it didn't. Uh, I wasn't crazy about it, you know. And the minute I heard, you know, that you'd do one set, and then you have to go in the village and go do something there, and they, I was like, I can't. I'm, this is late at night. I can't do this. <laughs> the whole world for me seemed kind of out of place. But I love doing sketch comedy. And when I was doing sketch comedy is where I developed the uh, the Raging Bullwinkle routine. Which, oh, please uh, do it. came and watched me do that. Do was, the Raging Bullwinkle. Oh, it's terrible. Just terrible. do it. We can cut uh, it out. What was the, uh, you know, it'd be, it was very, very simple. You know, you just have, you have like, you know, Rocky the Squirrel, you know, uh, 
you know, did you fuck my wife? And then- <laughs> You know that that that's all. It's Bullwinkle asking Rocky. Yes. If, uh, and Pe- Pesci was Pesci was the flying squirrel. Yes. And okay. Pesci is the flying squirrel. I got it. Saying, and, and what does he say? Are you are you nuts? Did you ask me a question like that? Why'd you ask me a question like that? I know you laughed as much as Marty. Marty was just, that was the funniest thing he ever heard. It's a pretty. When we were in Goodfellas, he'd say, "Oh, Bob, Bob, you gotta, you gotta hear it do this raging bullwinkle thing. It's so funny." And then suddenly, I'm like a person. I'm like, I've got this much of an act. It's not even like perfected. And suddenly, he's got Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci staring at me while I'm doing raging bullwinkle. <laughs> It's a pretty cerebral uh, comedy piece, if I must say, if, yes. I, if I can say, uh, Ileana, especially thank for you. a young comic to have come up with that. Yes, thank you. Pretty well, smart. Oh, and tell us about meeting Brando. Well, I mean, again, where do we? Did you ever meet him? No, Incredible. no. Just an amazing person. Well, again, this is when I was, uh, you know, with Marty. We, I was out in L.A. Of course, I always thought the I love the irony. He was out. I was doing a low budget film called Wedding Bell Blues, and he was receiving the John Houston Humanitarian Award. Uh, our lives were kind of different. And um, but uh, he said, oh, by the way. Because he would always do this. Oh, by the way, Marlon Brando is coming over for lunch. He's going to talk to me about this movie and you'll get to meet him. And I had a panic attack. I didn't want to meet Marlon Brando. I was like, I, I, he meant so much to me as an actor. He was like it. I had posters of him up on my wall. And, you know, I just did not want to meet him. But Marty insisted I meet him. And it just turned into this crazy experience at the uh, Beverly Wilshire Hotel where Marty kept he coached me. It was like when a producer you're going to be on a talk show and the producer keeps coaching you about (laughs) you'll say this. Dave will say this. And Marty had coached me so much. Don't talk. Don't say about acting. Marlon Brando, don't do this. Don't do that. The door opened and there was Marlon Brando. And I literally just burst out crying. (laughs) I started bawling. And he was like, oh, my God, my dear girl, what is the matter with you? And I just went on this. Everything you are is what I want to be. You're Marlon Brando. <laughs> I can't. Everything I want to be is because of you. And Marty was like, get a hold of yourself, kid. But all of a sudden, you know, Marlon Brando just, it was very weird. Like, we just kind of locked eyes and he started crying. And we just had this weird <laughs> connection where we both got, like, really, really emotional and it just changed the whole kind of day. I write about this whole experience. And he never left our room. He was there. He came there for lunch, stayed for dinner. He did, didn't end up leaving until like 1 o'clock in the morning. And it turned into this, you know, long day's journey into night with Marlon Brando, where it changed the whole trajectory of my relationship with Marty, uh, finding out about Marlon Brando, it was really an incredible 
experience. And Marlon Brando, much like Dennis Hopper and some of the other people, you know, he kind of changed my life. I don't know if you ever met anyone because he was from the movies. It's difficult to explain. If you have an upbringing like I did, that was completely unstable, right? You have no father figures except for Melvin Douglas. So I look to the movies for social cues, right? Then what happens if one day your social cue comes from a man who you have seen in movies? He's not even real. He doesn't exist. But suddenly he is real. He does exist. He's two feet away from you in the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, and he's giving you validation. You know, for me, that experience, I didn't need to go to therapy. That experience cured me. For other people, they would say, okay, well, maybe that's silly or that's not real or whatever. For me, because my whole world wasn't real, having Marlon Brando give me that validation, in a sense, cured me. If, if, if that makes any sense. And if Marlon Brando believed in me, who was I not to believe in myself? That's quite a story. Didn't he say something about your feet? Yeah, well, that's how it started. <laughs> that's how it started, because he looked, he's, he looked at me and he said, he looked at Marty and he said, they were talking about movies and I just thought, you know, I had so, I mean, listen, when I met you, remember, I was like, do you want a Diet Coke? Do you want anything? <laughs> <laughs> you know, my whole thing was, I just thought, well, you know, people are here to see Marty. They, they don't care who I am. I'm an actor. They don't care. So I tried to always make myself invisible. And so while Marlon Brando was talking to Marty about this movie, he he all of a sudden stopped and he looked at me and he said, look at your feet. And I looked down and he's and my feet were kind of inverted, pigeon toed. And he said, that's a sign of insecurity. Why should you be insecure? And I just burst out crying. And that's why I said I, I am insecure. You know, and I, I just went on this thing of feeling as if, I don't know why I'm here. You're here to talk to him, I, you know. And uh, it just set the, it set the tone of the day of, you know, he called me a tuning fork because he started to cry. And it was this very strange thing where suddenly... He, Marlon Brando and I were engaged in this really incredible uh, emotional experience. And I had like, you know, Marty on the sidelines kind of going, hey, what about me? <laughs> now, you also say then Brando sent you flowers and you were talking to another girl about possibly fucking Marlon Brando. Well, yeah. <laughs> Marlon, my biggest show business regret. 
that you I, I mean, to this day, I and again, I don't know if he wanted to. Maybe he did. Hopefully he did. But anyway, we had a real moment there. We connected. <laughs> he sent me a really beautiful, a personal letter along with like a bushel of roses. And he invited me to his house for lunch. And this is when I was still in a relationship and Marty's assistant uh, recommended quite strongly that I not go there to his house for lunch. So uh, ultimately, I didn't go, but it was my biggest show business regret. And and you are saying that it went so far as discussing with totally. this other woman, like how <laughs> how his fat would get in the way and what well, position it would have to <laughs> He was very large at the time. I mean, he showed up. He was wearing a sweatsuit. He was wearing this blue velour sweatsuit, which matched the color of his eyes. I was like, where where do you even get that much velour? I've never seen that much velour in my life. He was very, very large. And he had actually said he lost 30 pounds. I was thinking, you know, 30 pounds from what? You know, 300. But my friend, you know, I, I got invited to lunch and I was like ultimate fangirl. I was like, oh, my God, I got to go to Marlon Brando's house. I'm going to have sex with Marlon Brando. I'll tell you all about it. She's like, <laughs> you mind? you're in a relationship. Like, I was like, I don't care. Marlon Brando. But she kept trying to ruin it for me by describing that because of his girth, there would probably be only one or two ways we could have sex. <laughs> so, Incredible. Whether or not that's true, men of girth need to come out and explain whether she was correct or not. <laughs> we'll, put, we'll put it out there. <laughs> But I, she kept trying to ruin it for me. Uh, but to this day, who would – I mean – You should get a I hall pass. Marlon Brando, right? a right? hall pass, right? Uh, like, so what were the positions? <laughs> there's too, only, too much info. There's only one or two ways. If a man of gigantic girth – there, you could either there's you could either be underneath him and he would suffocate you, or you'd have or the girl would have to be on top. Either way, <laughs> and if she's on top and he's gigantic, you just can't look down. You just can't. <laughs> That's when you just have to fantasize, Ricard <laughs> aim desire and. You know, don't look down. But, um... While we wait for Gilbert to find the men's room, <laughs> we promise we'll come back to the show after a word from our sponsor. Don't go away. Let, let's talk about another another great actor that uh, that has a prominent role in the book, and yes. that's part, going back to your intro, uh, Richard Dreyfus. Oh, yes. Who, who we love. We've talked about him on the show. We've talked about the goodbye girl. We've talked. You've talked about the. You picked the uh, apprenticeship, oh, the of, Duddy apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz. Oh, the apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz. I love the best. Yeah. The best. Is it fair yeah. to say? I love when you say in the book that you wore him down until he became your friend. That's true. That's true. When I was first of all, I was obsessed with him. This is one of those interesting things. I mean, the movie The Goodbye Girl. I thought it was real. You know, when I moved to New York, 
I tr- actually tried to get an apartment <laughs> in the building, even though, you know, the, on, they shot the movie in a soundstage and the exterior of the building was on 78th Street in Columbus. And I actually tried to get an apartment in the building on 78th oh, where Street he, we, in Columbus. He slides down the fire escape ladder. Yeah. 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 There was. Yeah, I think I know the building. You do. At the time, there was a. Uh, 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 there was a place called Alice's Underground. There was a thrift store in the bottom floor. And I tried to get an apartment in the building and I couldn't get, but that's how real I thought it was. And I was, and again, when I was in acting school, I remember doing, I was in a play and I really, they didn't like what I was doing. And I said, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to be Richard Dreyfus. And then suddenly I, they were like, I don't know what you're doing, but keep it up. It's great. And I'm like, Dreyfus, Jaws, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> but um, so then years go by and then I get cast in this movie with Richard Dreyfus. And again, I'm like, oh, my God, it's going to be amazing. I can't wait to tell him I'm obsessed with him. And but it was a drama. It was not a comic it's movie. A Meyer Lansky and movie. And I was doing a very serious scene with him. And I I could not stop laughing because. You know, he was very funny in the film. And uh, but we eventually sort of got to talking, got to be friends. But it was really through Turner Classic Movies that I wore him down into actually participating in a friendship with him and letting me interview him on stage for Turner Classic Movies. And I think that was really a turning point because he hadn't done many film interviews. I don't think he takes his own career seriously. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, what I found interesting in the book is you said you were doing Richard Dreyfuss, and when you talked to him about this, he said he was doing Spencer Tracy. Yeah, I finally revealed to him that I was doing him, and he said, oh, that's funny, because I was doing Spencer Tracy. And I was like, what? And he goes, yeah, I loved Spencer Tracy. I was always, I said, wait a minute. So I'm doing you doing Tracy. You're not, I'm not even doing you, (laughs) you know? Now, is there any way you can demonstrate what your performance as Richard Dreyfuss was like? He needs to be full body. You know, he's got this thing where he, the way he walks, he kind of, right, wait a minute, let me try Ileana is getting up. We're on Skype looking at her. We should tell our listeners. She's, we're looking at her living room, and now she's standing up. He kind of, he does, you know, he does the bent over. He's like, <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty good. So like he's going to walk away, and then he goes, aha. <laughs> and he's a great on-screen thinker. You know, as you talk, he goes, Say, all right, talk to me as Rich. I'll be Richard Dreyfus. You guys talk to me. Go ahead, Gil. Okay. Uh, I, yep. I, I think we caught the shark. <laughs> shark? I'm telling you what you did. But no, he has this kind of cockiness, this belief in himself. Um, and what I love about him is as the other person is talking, you know, he's kind of nodding like you can't wait until the other person is through because, you know, he's going to rip into him. Did you guys see him recently on um, Stephen Colbert? No, no. I'll have to track that down. Yeah, it's interesting because there is no longer a place for Richard Dreyfus on television. Wow. Um, it's there. We just don't have the time 
You know, that's why podcasts are so important. There's not the time on television for nuance anymore or for long, prolonged comedy bits. Remember the old days, a comedian would come on and they'd kind of plan something. There's just, oh, yeah. Steve Martin always brought a bit to The Tonight Show. Yeah, or there's like Albert there's, Brooks. Six, there's six minutes to come on and... The person, to me, Dreyfus needs, you need that nuance and that build for him. Well, and, we're going to get him on this show. So we're, de- yes. we're determined. Oh, you, you must have seen Mr. Holland's opus a few no. times. It's a killer. <laughs> yeah, he's just, he has so much range. The movie is a killer. You you go, I am not going to be taken in by this movie. He's got the deaf son. I'm not going <laughs> to. And then by the end, you're bawling. <laughs> and in, in the book, you talk about that scene in The Goodbye Girl. And he's so funny in the film. And we'll just throw in the youngest man to ever win the best actor and yes. all of that. And you point out in the book last comedic performance to, to win a to win a, in a lead role. <laughs> Completely interesting topic. No one since Richard Dreyfuss know, shame. has won Best Lead Actor. You can look it up. No one is, has won Best Leading Actor for a comedic role since Richard Dreyfuss. No. Banner year because <laughs> Diane Keaton won for Annie Hall the same year. That's the, that's the interesting year, yes. You talk about in the book that moment in The Goodbye Girl, and I know Gilbert knows this, and he's so damn funny in the film, but when he when he bombs in Richard III and they go uh, backstage to see him and he's sitting there at the, yeah. at the at the dressing table. Yeah. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. It is. And there's this whole turn because it's this whole comic... Uh, you know, persona, you know, very cocky, very confident. And in that moment, you go, oh, wait a minute. Is this whole thing an act? Is he maybe more vulnerable than we had imagined? And I think for me personally, he started this whole, again, uh, idea of the comic personality, the comic, the schlubby guy that gets the girl. That's where it began with the goodbye girl. Interesting. And you can see a whole people after him, you know, Jonah Hill, Seth Rogen, etc. that it begins with Richard Dreyfus, and I don't think anybody gives him credit for that. The vulnerability of the comedian who gets the girl, who gets the girl because he's charming. And I think it's one of the, not to make this about awards, but I think it's one of the years that Oscar really got it right, oh. so 77. And then two years later, they would get it wrong when Peter Sellers does not win for, play, for playing Chance the Gardener in, uh, in being there. It's hard to imagine. Loses to Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. And I love Dustin Hoffman, but not for Kramer versus Kramer. It, it that I mean, it's a good movie, but it can't compare with Peter Sellers. No, it's the what, performance of a lifetime. Yeah, and what about the growth of the popularity of the movie being there? Yeah, you know, which again went through. You know, it's another whole interesting topic. You guys love movies, but the death of Hal Ashby and Bob Fosse, um, I feel, really contributed to the lack of sensitivity in films. They were two really interesting filmmakers. And I feel like their loss is really felt. You know, Hal Ashby with movies like Coming Home, The Last Detail, oh, Shampoo. Yeah. So yeah, uh, Bound for Harry Glory. Yeah. You know, his 
his take on society, uh, that social satire that being there is, I really feel is missing. But being there is, I think, has gotten like an enormous repopularity because of our crazy political system. Um, but that's a great film. And to me, Peter Sellers in the movie is, I don't know, it's a beyond gr- beyond reproach. It's a performance you can't even describe. And Gilbert Gilbert worked with Jack Warden. Oh, yeah. Oh, who's in on, being there? On three of the problem child movies. <laughs> <laughs> he was terrific. You know, another Martin Scorsese, uh, a favorite film, Problem Child, John Ritter. I It pops up in Cape Fear. They show yeah. a scene from <laughs> there Problem you go. Child. It's come full circle. Yeah. Again, my, my whole goal in life is to work with people. I was working with John Ritter on a movie called Hacks, and I said, you know, by the way, Martin Scorsese is a huge fan of yours. He put Problem Child uh, in Cape Fear as a little nod to you. So, yes. That's great. He is a he is a fan of that movie. I love Jack Warden. Oh, yeah. And it's like uh, with Duddy Kravitz, oh, they yeah, had both again. Jack Warden yeah. and Joseph Wiseman. Ah, uh, the best. Yeah. Speaking okay. of Fosse, did, did did you and Richard ever talk about all that jazz and what happened? No. Is he I, is he willing to talk about that? Do you know? No, no. I mean the uh, uh, you know as I said, just with um, it's a shame that um, Fosse is not around. I, I think yeah. it's really um, it's really a shame. Well, you know Dreyfus. You know the Goodbye Girl. You know, of course, originally it was Robert De Niro. Right. Uh, Bogart slept here. Bogart slept here. Right. And then it didn't work out. And but the goodbye girl, bringing it back to Dustin Hoffman, apparently was based on Dustin Hoffman. Oh, yes. We've said this on the show. You talked about this when we talked about a goodbye girl. You remember? Gilbert? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's who it was originally based on. And that story, that's where the original idea. And came uh, yeah. From. And I think Mike Nichols was directing uh, the De Niro, yes. Marsha Mason version before they rebooted it yeah. with and then Herbert Ross it's really you know well you know successful movies exist in a state of grace right everything has to go right and, yes and whatever happened to Max Rose cuz it also has Ben Gazar another favorite of mine <laughs> that's a good question i don't know i just heard jerry lewis and i wanted to be in it but um after it went to can I don't. I think that the screening in Cannes did not go well. Oh, it became like many other movies where it exists, but uh, you know. But I don't know if anyone has seen it. There, there is so much in the book uh, again, uh, Ileana, which we want to say as we as we wind down, only because oh. we'll all get exhausted. <clears throat> we could keep going. There is so much in the book. I want you to tell the Billy uh, the uh, the Rudy Valley story. Uh, real quick, if you can, did you get to that part in the book? Oh uh, yes, Gilbert? it's so yes. it's so touching. I, I, I mean, it was sad and sweet. It's you know, it's interesting when I was writing the book, and I wanted when I wanted to do the memoir, I wanted to tell this memoir through movies, and it was interesting when I was talking with my editor. We had reached a point where, you know, he wanted me to be talking more about my career, and I'm like, I I don't care about like I haven't done anything interesting and I kind of like I had read these notes that were 
uh, you know, uh, sort of challenging where I thought, geez, am I even on the right track? And I took a couple days off and I said, you know what? I'm just going to write about something. I don't even know if it's going to go in the book, but I'm, let me write about an experience that I really had that profoundly ch- changed my life. And that ended up being the Rudy Valley chapter because, you know, my first experience being on the peripheries of show business was getting a little job at this place, the Camelot Dinner Theater. And Rudy Valley, who was in his 80s by that point, had come in to do this one-man show. And watching him for the seven days he was there perform kind of night after night uh, just really changed my life. He was such a trooper. And he kind of took a liking to me. And on the last night that he was there, and again, I should say that Rudy Valley, for people who don't know, he invented crooning. Oh, yeah. You know. Oh, he was, a, he was a matinee idol. Yeah. And Bing Crosby was a fan of his. Frank Sinatra is a fan of Bing Crosby. So, right. again, we have this whole tra- trajectory of show business. But I was so – it was like when he was performing, it was like he wasn't this 85-year-old man out in the boondocks of Connecticut. I saw this matinee idol you know, performing and people giving him a standing ovation and cheering. And on the last night he was there, he invited me back to his dressing room, this like creepy little dingy dressing room at the Camelot Dinner Theater. And I thought, oh boy, this is what my grandfather has warned me about. (laughs) He's going to pounce on me and be be my vagabond lover. But um, he took out this little very cheap GE tape recorder and he pressed play. He said, I want you to hear something. I think you'll appreciate that. And we were sitting there in his dressing room and I was listening to this thing. And I said, is that the ocean? I didn't know what it was. I heard this like whooshing sound and he turned around and he looked this flourish with his hands. And he said, that's my applause. And, uh, it was so touching because I thought, you know, in this moment, like if you could be Rudy Valley, if you could record your applause, if you could somehow hold on to that joy that you've given people, that maybe in a sense that is the essence of what show business is. Because so many times, you know, you leave the stage, you're only happy I don't know any performer who's happy for more than 10 minutes. Is that how long it lasts? If it lasts longer than 10 minutes, you tell me once you get off stage. Oh, it's I, I always hear and I totally understand uh, why some why so many people in show business get on drugs because there's this high, you know, they're all applauding, they're worshiping yeah. you. And then, you know, you go back to your dressing room and you're sitting by yourself. And And it wears, it's like a magic spell that suddenly wears off. And so watching Rudy Valley listen to this applause on a cheap GE tape recorder that he had recorded, and this man had been like a giant in show business, I just thought, I saw the future of my own life as a performer. And I was like, wow, if that that's all it is. If you could somehow 
uh, remember, try to remember this joy that you've given people, which is impossible. But if you can try to remember that, that can somehow, you know, give you, give you this sense of purpose and you're- that I, that no matter where you are, that's all it is. It's very hard to retain. And your friend, but, um, your friend Roddy McDowell. I tried to, I tried to incorporate that in the story of what it feels like, you know, if that makes any sense. Oh, very much so. And your friend Roddy McDowell gave you similar advice: hang on to the joy. Yes, very touching. Again, yeah, yeah. very interesting thing. He blew me away when he said that people like Marty Scorsese and Spielberg were beyond feeling any joy in their work. And that somebody like Marilyn Monroe could not uh, retain and hold on to joy. And that was what led to depression. And so these were things that people said to me very early on. And they were warning signs so that, you know, I didn't let myself fall into that trap of, of feeling depressed, of trying to, you know, trying to understand how do you retain joy? How do you hold on to that feeling of wanting to make audiences happy? It's very, very hard, very challenging. It's one of the it's profound things in the book that stays with you, as well as the Rudy Valley story. Yeah. And what, I, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, I was going to say it's it's, it's 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 challenge because it is. It's like it goes up. In, you know, it, it 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 disappears. I know all all the joy that I've ever experienced. Most of it has not been in real life. It's been in show business. And that's that's always sort of weird because it's not really real. It's fleeting. <laughs> yes. It's not it's not real. You're not supposed to get happiness. You're supposed to get happiness from holding babies. You know? <laughs> <laughs> tell you you love you but if you don't have that the only other happiness you have is when someone you respect and admire says hey i saw your movie and you know i really dug it and you're like incredibly happy and then when you find it fleeting away you're like no no please don't let that feeling go away so but that's what show business is there there is so much we could cover there's so much in the book. The book is dense. There's, I mean, there's, there's stories. There's, there's love of movies. Are you still doing the thing with TCM? Are you still doing second looks? Oh my goodness! Well, we we were we're developing the second looks actually into what could possibly be a web series, which could be really interesting for the online community. But in the meantime, we're getting ready for the TCM Film Festival, which is coming up in uh, the end of April, and then we're doing Trailblazing Women. Um, with the, the first year we covered female directors, mm-hmm. and now this year we're going to be uh, covering. Female female actresses, their social contributions. And we're going to start shooting that in July. So I'll still be doing that. It's all I watch is TCM, Gil. I don't know about you. Oh, yeah. I'm obsessed with it. And what are those movies? What are those posters? Where, where, I should say. I, I was just going <laughs> to ask her that. <laughs> we, we should, again, tell our listeners we have uh, Ileana on Skype, so we're looking at her den. I've and been there are movie looking posters. over your shoulder at that. Have you been trying to figure out yes. what they are and piece yeah. them together? So have I. What, what are the, what's the big one over your uh, right shoulder? on the? Well, on... I've, got, I've got Jules and Jim. Okay, it's a great one. I've got some came running. Oh, Frank yeah. Dean Martin, um, Robert Montgomery, uh, ride the pink horse. Uh huh. 
I've got Side Street. I've got the Nutty Professor. There you White go, Gil. Oh, great. Signed by Jerry Lewis. That's a good, that's a really good one. Um, and then I'm surrounded. Here, wait a minute. Hold on. She's turning the camera around. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> oh, look at that, Gil. Oh, wow. A whole collage yeah. of Jerry Lewis in yeah. clown makeup and his yeah. regular... Yeah. And the musket the, the MDA telethon uh, talks yeah. and the whole thing. We don't have we don't have we need headshots like this to come back. Right? I know. <laughs> Gilbert will send you one. <laughs> <laughs> He'll sign one for you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, with, a, with a series of looks and, I yeah. I love those kind of headshots. They oh, always the made best. me sad. There were ones that would come for Four shots, yes. and one would be in, like, an army helmet. The other would be, like, a southern general. <laughs> the other would be a playboy. Or, or, or like, a kung fu pose. Oh, yes. <laughs> in, a, in, a, in, a, in a white karate suit. Oh, <laughs> uh, There's so much we could talk about. Well, we're, you're doing another book, so we'll have to do another episode. Yeah, I'm starting on my second book, uh, which is called Nostalgia Holic. Uh, that's my because I'm obsessed with the past. Ileana, one of the touching things in the book, and you talked about why podcasts are important, and this touched me. You said we all have movies change our lives, and we all have to be living historians. I, I think it's true. I mean, I I think of myself as you know. Um, I mean, one of the weird you know hits. Um, and there's been, you know, the, the book has been like extremely well reviewed and people love it, but every once in a while you get some like, you know, internet Yahoo. And it was like, Oh, she's such a name dropper, but it's like, to me, it's, you know, I think of myself as a rememberer, you know, and I remember these stories and I'm trying to give voice to people that meant a lot to me. Who else is talking about Buddy Hackett or Rudy Valley or Jerry Lewis? We As are on this show. That's about it. Constantly. <laughs> yeah, it's constantly. Although weird. I don't know if Buddy Hackett ever got shit on. Yeah, I don't think nah. so. No, I don't think he was. Not if he, like, he didn't like cigarette smoke even. <laughs> no. No, no one's talking about these You know things. what this is like? This is like, what is that movie? Fahrenheit. Four four fifty one. I forgot the yeah. I forgot the number. The one with the Ray Bradbury story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where where they all had to walk around uh, memorizing these books and reciting them. Yeah, yeah. Because all these books were gone. Well, that's. I mean, listen. When I'm on a film set, nobody knows who anybody is anymore. So it's like in order to give film some context and you're talking about something, you know, the fact that nobody knows who Spencer Tracy is anymore. I know. It's really, you know, it's kind of frightening, I think. I I was at a table and these people were talking about Jack Benny. And one of them said, was Jack Benny ever funny? And the other one said... Oh, the other people on this show were funny, but Jack Benny just kind of stood around. <laughs> and I thought, what? <laughs> yeah, crazy. Well, you know, some days, I mean, so that's why I say, like, I'm trying to give context for some of these people that I've met along the way. You are. You know, and find their, put their place properly in film history, which is what Turner Classic Movies does. And, and you know, I, I find it weird when I'm reading 
by someone who allegedly is a movie expert, and I'll go, oh, my God, they're getting everything fucking wrong. Well, that's true. There isn't. You know, in my day, again, because my grandfather was Melvin Douglas, you know, the Jew. I really had to have my movie <laughs> history correct. I, I couldn't, bet. like, screw up something with Greta Garbo because he'd actually worked with Greta Garbo. Of course. And we gave your uncle, uh, your uncle, your grandfather a short shrift on this show, unfortunately. And we there's so much we could also say about him. I mean, he worked with Faye Ray and Greta Garbo and Dietrich and yeah. George and uh, George Zuko Gilbert, oh, you would yeah. care about, and uh, Lupi Velez and Karloff. Unbelievable! And what a career! Yeah. So we'll, we'll Robert Redford, you know, he's... Oh, right, of course, George C. Scott, and the list goes on. Lionel yeah. Atwill, <laughs> <laughs> Vampire Bat. <laughs> <laughs> These are the people Gilbert cares about. Yes. You say Robert yeah. Redford, he says Lionel Atwill, <laughs> and George Zuko, and is George one of my Zuko. favorites. Yeah, look, look him up if you don't know him. I will. As soon as this call is over, but no, the, uh, uh, but no, I couldn't screw up my references, you know. And now it's so weird. Like people just write stuff down, and it's derivative, and it's not even really accu- accurate or reflective of what the person was really like. Yeah. So, in a sense, I'm trying to again give a voice to somebody. Uh, you know, like Marlon Brando or or some of the people that I've worked with, like Robert De Niro. You know, nobody's ever written. We, you know, we we think of Robert De Niro, but I thought, you know what, I'm going to write a whole chapter about what it is like to work with Robert De Niro because nobody writes. No one's done a profile of Robert De Niro. And and you, did you ever consider you, that? Yeah, you said yeah. that. When you were doing this dramatic scene in Cape Fear with Robert De Niro, in yeah. between takes, you'd yes. be acting out Three Stooges routine. Yes. That's yeah. great. He was into the Three Stooges. Which <laughs> I know. Over my head. I, I don't. I'm not even going to say I appreciate their humor. I'm not even going to say that. I do not. Well, that's sacrilege, <laughs> and I don't want to fucking talk to you anymore. Uh, we're, missing, uh, we're missing some chromosome. Because <laughs> they're they're waving they're waving a, a, a oh, flashlight okay. at us, to Jerry Lewis flashlight, telling us to wrap okay. it up. Okay, right. we gotta wrap it. Well, up. we'll do it again. Okay, we hope we we hope you'll come back. There's so much we didn't oh. cover. We'll come back real soon after the Turner Classic Movies Film Festival. I'll have more gossip on everybody. Oh, we'll come to God. New York and we'll do it live. Yes. I'm sorry. You can blame the airline that, um, you know, well, it's the it's the one that is if if you don't have sex with anyone, they call you a blank. Wait a sec. A virgin. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you said hey, it. You said hey, it, not her. Oh, before I forget, I got kicked out of the Metropolitan Museum of Art after a screening of Goodfellas. What? I said, where's the party at? And the guy waves his hand, the guy behind his desk, and security guards grabbed me and threw me outside. Is this true? Yes, absolutely true. (laughs) And then I finally got back inside, and some woman was following me around, Uh saying that she thought I was taking pictures and... And so I let me just say, fuck yeah. you, Metropolitan Museum of Art. <laughs> did you tell Marty this? I did. <laughs> and what did he, he say? He didn't react at all. He's an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> fuck Marty Scorsese. 
He's going to call you now. You're going to be in vinyl like next week. You're going to be like Ray Romano. There you go, Gil. You should be so lucky. (laughs) We'll have you back. When when you're in New York, we'll talk more about your grandfather's films and more stuff from the book. And I'll, and I'll contaminate you with Jewish blood. Thank you. I, <laughs> yeah. Now, we've, we've been talking to actress, producer, director, and now writer. And film historian. Yeah, and film historian, Ileana Douglas. And uh, she's got her new book out, I Blame Dennis Hopper and Other Stories from a Life Lived in and out of movies, and most importantly, she is the granddaughter of Jew actor (laughs) (laughs) Melvin Douglas. He used to bill himself as that, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He yeah. did. He did. <laughs> the, the, the book is phenomenal, too. I just want to say to our listeners, our loyal podcast listeners, it is, it's a memoir. It's a film history book. It's a movie guide. There's so much in here. It's so thank dense. You. Yeah, I thank you. No, I appreciate that. I want them to, re- to read it, and then, you know, uh, can, they can write me if they have any questions. And as I said, I'm going to do a follow-up. So i got a bunch more stories in me. <laughs> It's great. And, 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 to, and to go out, Ileana, you said, I, I heard you say that you wanted to marry Groucho, uh, Groucho when you were growing up. Oh, my God. I was, uh, there was something wrong with me. I was, <laughs> so quick. I was, he was my, like, again, yeah, it was, again, another, it was delusional. I was like, I used to be obsessed with with marrying uh, Groucho Marx. I, I didn't get to meet him. <laughs> I, I, I meant to Cavett, though. Close enough. Yeah. So, so uh, just just to get you into your sexual fantasy. Here you go. Yes. You're you're lying in bed now, and an elderly Groucho Marx <laughs> is on top of you, wearing his beret, going, "Oh, Eliana, I'm gonna stick my dick in you." <laughs> no. <laughs> Don't ruin it for her. <laughs> He's I'm, going around the house I'm, doing his cigar. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, funny and Juliana, I'm gonna go singing. drown on you now. <laughs> Keep it clean, Groucho. He's he's singing Lydia the. Uh, Not in my I fantasy. <laughs> Lydia the tattooed lady. (laughs) Ileana, this has been fantastic. A lot of fun. Ileana Douglas. Thank you. And this has been Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre at Nutmeg Post with Frank Rose. Thank you, Frank. Thank you again, and I I really hope to see you in person again soon. You will, I promise. I promise. Bye-bye. Very soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.